We want to look at a couple things, if we could, please, from the book of Jeremiah in chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7. So if you'll open to that spot and you can put something in there, uh, we'll be coming back there very, very soon. You might ask a question as it comes to mind. Why would we be looking back 3,000 plus years ago to this scenario that takes place in the book of Jeremiah? Well, first of all, we've been studying Jeremiah in our evening service together. And we've been going through the book of Jeremiah in our studies to, to give us a picture of uh, who God is and his purposes. Remember, the scriptures tell us all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. So all of the Old Testament and all of the New Testament is given to us to learn about God, who he is, and, and his purposes. But to narrow that just a little bit, now you have something in Jeremiah 7. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians, if we could, chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The question is, why are we looking at this Old Testament book of Jeremiah? What does this have to do with me? What application can I make? Well, Paul, as he's writing to the church of Corinth and giving some warnings there, and we'll see that in uh, just a little bit, but we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Look at verse 1 with me. He's writing to the Jewish group, a group of Jews that are at Corinth, but there was, of course, Gentiles along with him there at Corinth. Notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant that all our fathers were under the cloud. So you can see he's bringing them back to the Mosaic times when Moses led the children of Israel out of uh, Egypt. And he continues on to letting them know, here's what our fathers did, here's, here's the history behind this. And then he, he brings it to the present tense when he says in verse um, 5, but with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. You see, the end of their disobedience was, this, was God's judgment upon them. However, notice please in verse 6, now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they did. Neither be ye idolaters as were some of them. Neither, verse 8, neither let us commit fornication. Verse 9, neither let us put Christ to the test as some of them tested him. Verse 10, neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured. Verse 11, now all these things happened unto them for our examples and they are written for our admonition upon, upon whom the ends of the age are come. So Paul simply lets the uh, church of Corinth know this Old Testament, the way God dealt with the nation of Israel, the way he dealt with his people, God has given us that as an example so we would not follow in their tracks. These are all written as examples to us. And so we want to see back in the book of Jeremiah chapter 7 the examples that Israel took, and make application to us today. Is it possible? Is it possible that we can fall into the same trap that Israel fell in? Well, the answer is, of course it is, because God said it was. And so we want to uh, take this whole process and examine uh, Jeremiah chapter 7. Now, Jeremiah chapter 7, of course, is an interesting chapter. Jeremiah has been sent to the small, very small, a nation of Judah. It's what's left of, of the tribes of Israel. The ten tribes went to the north, 
as we examine on Sunday evenings, and they were taken in what's called the Assyrian captivity. They were totally decimated by Assyria. Assyria was later judged by God, but they were totally decimated, the ten tribes to the north. All that remains in the south is the small tribe of Judah and a part of the tribe of Benjamin. And they're just minuscule compared to the rest of the nation that was together. They are in great, great stress. And the reason they are is they have left God. They have turned their face from God. They saw their sister up in the north, referred to as Israel, uh, Ephraim, the the chief tribe up there. They, They saw their group up there. They saw them destroyed. And yet they continued in their own sinful wickedness. And God has sent Jeremiah to tell them, if you do not repent, you likewise will be destroyed. He lets Jeremiah know, I'm preparing a nation. And we know that to be the uh, Chaldeans or what we would know them as the Babylonians. I'm preparing a nation to come from the northern part. It's interesting because the uh, Assyrian, uh, I mean the Babylonian nation was really to their far east, but they had to take a northern route up over the Arabian desert and down into the land of Israel. Um, um, They're coming. They're going to come and they're going to destroy And when they get there, they will level everything and take everyone, and it will be a terrible mess. So Jeremiah is strapped, if you would, with this prophecy. He has to tell the people this. And yet, in Jerusalem, is where Jeremiah is centered, in Jerusalem is the temple of the Lord, what's called Solomon's temple. And Jeremiah is instructed to go into this temple and to tell this people that this temple will be leveled. Now, I, just saying that, it sounds insignificant until we examine a little bit this temple. One of the most magnificent structures ever on the face of the earth. One of the most magnificent places that God ever set his name upon to worship. Prior to this, the nation used to worship in what we know to be the tabernacle out in the desert, Under Mosaic law, the tabernacle was set up, and everywhere the pillar of fire left or the pillar of cloud left, that uh, tabernacle tabernacle followed. Inside of the tabernacle was a table of showbread, there was a candelabra, and then there was a, a table of incense that was in the inner court inside of this tent structure. In the Far inside was what was known as the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of God's Covenant was kept. It was a box with two angels on the top of it. They were uh, made of gold, pure gold. The seat was overlaid with pure gold. And inside of it was the law given by Moses to the people of God in tables of stone. And that's where God met with the high priest once a year in what we know to be the Passover time. When God... Uh, instructed the nation of Israel in Egypt that to put the blood on the the sides of the doors and on the doorposts, I'm coming in and I'm going to kill all the firstborn in the nation of Egypt. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And so from from time to time, as they moved from year to year, for some 40 plus years in the wilderness, that tabernacle, they took that tabernacle up, the high priest very specifically ordered, and moved it everywhere the cloud went, everywhere the pillar of fire went, and that's where they worshiped the Lord. But King David now 
after the period of the judges, King David has been instructed by the Lord to set up what we know to be this wonderful temple. King David has taken the land of Israel, particularly the southern tribe of Judah, and he has built what we know and captured a city, a Jebusite city known as Jerusalem, the city of God. He has taken that, and now he has built himself a wonderful palace. Now, we're talking about the land of Judah down here in Jerusalem. Whenever you're looking for Israel, always look at the far east, uh, far eastern part of the Mediterranean Sea. You'll see on every map, you'll see the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, and the Dead Sea. That will tell you where the land of Israel is. Right here, down in the south, is Jerusalem. Right down here, uh, in proximity with the Dead Sea and in proximity with uh, the Jordan River, from the Mount of Olives, which is on the eastern side of the uh, city of Jerusalem, you can see down into the Dead Sea area. So we have a, a fairly uh, large area as we look at it on a map, but compared with the rest of the nation, with all of this, which has been taken into captivity, a very, very small area. So King David now has taken the city of Jerusalem from the Jebusites. He set up his own little city. The reason he did that is because of its proximity. It was, in fact, uh, very central to all of the tribes in the nation of Israel. This was the ancient tribe. This is an artist's conception. This was the ancient city of Jerusalem, a very, very small place in, in comparison for what it is today. It was about one-tenth the size, this little tiny area. But it was a fortified city, and King David took it. After taking it, he built himself an exquisite temple right here for himself, a, a house rather, uh, a palace for himself right here. And as he built that, he continued his conquest throughout the known world around him. And he vanquished nation after nation, tribe after tribe, and he became one of the mightiest powers on the face of the earth in his day. He then sat back and began to relax. And we know what happened in the process. He looked down from, uh, from his palace here. He could look down on all the houses in this particular area. And, of course, that's when he saw Bathsheba, and we know the whole story behind that. But David now is in his own house, and the Lord impresses upon him, it's time for you to build a house for me. Now, how do we know that? Well, it came to David's mind, I need to build a, build a palace for my God. I need to build a house wherein my God can dwell. Uh, not, not literally or physically speaking, but a place where we can worship God. So David began the process, and he went up and he bought this threshing field up here. This is called the threshing field of Ornan. He bought it from Ornan. It was, it was a process involved with that, but he bought it from Ornan, and he said, that's where I'm going to build my temple. Today, that area is, still exists to this very day, but this is that place right here. You'll notice the Dome of the Rock up here. This is the Al-Aska Mosque. 
But this is where Solomon's temple sat, right here. Down here, this little footprint right here, that was the ancient city of Jerusalem. David's palace was right in here. It's kind of interesting, in these latter years, David's palace has been unearthed. The Palestinians that lived there sold the land. The generations, the newer generations, sold the land to the uh, archaeological society of the nation of Israel, the Antiquities Department, and they unearthed David's. They actually found David's uh, palace right in this area. But up here is where David bought the property from Ornan, and he began the process of what we know to put up Solomon's temple. Now, David asked the prophet, can I do this? And the prophet uh, said, yes, go ahead. Then the Lord speaks to the prophet Nathan and said, no, David cannot do it. His son can do it. But supernaturally and specifically, God gave David the plans to this temple. He gave him all the plans to it. And David collected all the money for it. And we won't take time to go into all this because it, it's a great deal of information but the, the armies gave to this, the people gave to this, hundreds of millions of dollars in gold and silver and work. And they built, on top of that mount, they built what we know to be Solomon's temple. You can look at this in the Chronicles. I won't have you turn there for the sake of time. But in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, right through chapter 4, tells us the process of this building. There were 83 thousand quarrymen, 80,000 men just to cut the stones. They, they cut all the stones. Uh, you don't have it here on this map, but they cut all the stones from right up in here, the northern part of the city called the Damascus Gate. I have been down below the Damascus Gate into that quarry and have seen the place where these stones were cut by King Solomon. This is the Damascus Gate. It's under Palestinian authority, but it's the northernmost gate in the city of Jerusalem. And right down in this area, down in the side down in here, that's where the great Solomon's quarry is. And all the stones there were quarried in such a way that when they brought them back up onto the Temple Mount, there was not the sound of a hammer. There was not the sound of a hammer on the Temple Mount. They slid the stones together in a prefab type situation to build this magnificent, magnificent temple. In the process of that, I, I have been under the wall, many of you who have come to Israel with me have been under what we know to be the rabbi's tunnel, and these great stones, 40, 50 feet long, uh, 15, 20 feet long, these stones that have been, were placed together to build what we know to be uh, the temple that uh, was Herod's temple, you cannot slide a credit card in between them. It's one of the most fascinating building uh, sites in the world. Well, this temple is now going to be built. There were 70,000 porters, and there were 33,000 woodcutters to build this temple. Now, the temple preparation, the mount was uh, somewhat leveled, and the temple preparation now is going to take place under, of course, King David's tutelage, but King Solomon takes over the process. All this money comes in, all of this grandeur comes in, and they begin the process of putting this temple together. And you can see that in 2 Chronicles chapter 3. I won't have you turn there. The dimensions of this temple, the dimensions of this temple, 
It was 90 feet long, it was 30 feet wide, and it was 45 feet high. This ceiling is about 40 feet, give or take a few feet. This building is 40 feet wide. So it was 10 feet shy, the width of it. This building from that back door there to this wall right here is 70 feet long, just to give you some kind of perspective what was inside there. Everything inside was exquisitely carved, hand-carved, made of all kinds of uh, ornate woods. There were all kinds of carvings, and again, you can see that in the Book of uh, Kings. Everything that was carved, pomegranates and all kinds of carvings, everything that was carved was overlaid with gold. So the, the brilliance of the place was magnificent. As they began carving, they divided up the, uh, the whole process, the whole building, very similar to what we would have in the tabernacle. You had the holy place. This was 60 feet long, the holy place. And then the holy of holies, in which the Ark of the Covenant was kept. Instead of having one table of showbread, there were 10 of them along this wall. Instead of having one lampstand, there were 10 of them along here. Can you imagine a building this size with 10 lampstands and everything overshadowed with gold, overlaid with gold? The brilliance of the place must have been beyond description. Inside of the Holy of Holies, were two cherubim, images of cherubim, carved out of wood, acacia wood, and they were overlaid with gold. Each cherubim was 15 feet high and had a wingspan of 15 feet. So from one wall to that wall, there were two giant cherubim, and beneath them was put the Ark of the Covenant. I only mention this to give you some kind of idea what's going on now, a magnificent outer structure. There were two giant columns outside. One of them was Jachin, called uh, He Shall Establish, God Shall Establish. The other one was Boaz, In Him Is Strength, these giant columns with gold around them. So when people came to see this, when they came to this area to worship, they would just be mesmerized. Remember the queen of Sheba came to see Solomon, and she said, I've heard about this. And the half has not even been told what this looked like. Magnificent, magnificent place. Outside of it were these wagons that held about 300 gallons of water apiece. These wagons, these were used for cleansing of sacrifice, for cleansing of the temple itself. Then there was a giant uh, area here called the Molten Sea. According to the height and width of this thing, it was bronze, According to it, they said it held between 10 and 20,000 gallons of water on top of the Temple Mount. Just try to get a picture, just a slight picture, if you could, of, of this magnificent, magnificent building. Inside, I mentioned the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant of God, a giant altar in which sacrifice was laid, a ramp up into the altar in which sacrifice was made. This building was beyond description. It lasted a little over 100 years. King Solomon went into great sin. He took himself many wives, and those wives turned his mind away from the living God. May I say this? He went willfully. He just as guilty as his wives. 
for his sin before the Lord. But the temple now has been refurbished by Josiah. Josiah is excited. And God says, we read it in Jeremiah, you have been involved in this sinful, uh, sinful lifestyle, and yet you come to this place. You come to this place, and you stand up here, and you say, he's our God. This is our God. Look what our God has done. Look at this place. Surely God is not going to destroy this place. And Jeremiah has been telling them over and over, God will destroy this place unless you repent. He will destroy this place unless you repent. And the false prophets are all around them saying, surely God will not destroy this nation. God will not destroy this place. And so the people are being fed with their own sinful lusts. They're involved in all kinds of wickedness. When you read through the book of Jeremiah, you'll see that. Uh, they're, they're involved in, in sinful lifestyle. They've turned away from the living God. They're worshiping Baal. They're sacrificing their own children in Baal worship. It's an incredible, incredible thing. And yet they go to church, if you would. Realize that's not church, it's temple. Yet they go to temple and they worship. And so God is letting them know, I will, in fact, destroy uh, this place. Now head back with me to Jeremiah chapter 7 for a moment, please. Let's look at what God says again in Jeremiah chapter 7. He says in verse 1, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house. I want you to go there, Jeremiah, and I want you to stand in the front entrance. So this would be the front entrance to the temple right here. Now Jeremiah is going to stand right there, and he has to scream out to the people coming to to worship. You're a liar. Your prophets are liars. And you're here under false pretense. You are not truly worshiping the Lord God. Can you imagine that? How would you like that job? How would you like that job? But God told him to do it. He said, verse 2, stand at the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, all ye Judah, and that enter into these gates to worship the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. See, if you will repent, if you will stop this wickedness, if you will stop this, this heathen practice, such a thing never entered my mind, we read uh, about the Lord's proclamation. This, this, this is beyond control. You're, you're involved in wicked wickedness. If you'll do that, then this place will stand. However, verse 4, trust not in lying words, saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord is these. You can hear the people screaming out, but what are you talking about, Jeremiah? This is God's temple. This is God's temple. This is God's place. How can you say this will be destroyed? Remember, this thing is shining with gold. It's opulent in every way. It, it's an incredible building. It's an incredible priesthood. There's all kinds of uh, pomp and circumstance that goes on. And you're saying, you're, this skinny little Jew was standing there saying, God's going to destroy this place. And they were just making fun of him. They were just belittling him. Verse 5, 
For if you thoroughly amend your ways, completely amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute justice between a man and his neighbor, if you oppress not the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow, and shed not innocent blood in this place, neither walk after other gods to your harm, then will I cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. So God's warning them, listen, this is what I promised your fathers. I will keep my promise to them and to you if you will amend your ways. But the people kept crying out, well, this is the temple of the Lord. This place could never be destroyed. God did this. God did the work. Look how magnificent it is. And God says to them in verse 12, but go now unto my place, which is in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it for the wickedness of my people. Now, again, I have to bring you back historically. We're going back a generation, and we're going to Shiloh. Now, Shiloh was the temporary headquarters of the nation of Israel. Shiloh is about 25 miles north of Jerusalem, just about due north. I had to write it on this map. It was not here. But Shiloh was right there. What was Shiloh all about? It was a temporary headquarters of Israel prior to David taking the city of Jerusalem. And that's where, the, uh, where most of the, the judges of the nation of Israel centered their, centered their worship or centered their place of gathering as in Shiloh. Particularly, the last judge was um, Samuel, but prior to him was Eli. Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phineas. They were, in fact, the last of the judges until Samuel came along. And for the sake of time, which we, we don't have much at all, but for the sake of time, let me just bring you back to that thought. Turn with me to 1 Samuel for a moment, please. 1 Samuel chapter 3. Remember, this is a generation prior, or actually a couple generations prior, but we're in 1 Samuel chapter 3, and God is telling the people of Israel that you need to listen. You need to understand what I did in Shiloh. Now, when we mention that in the pages of Scripture, it's hot. What, what's that all about? But let, let me throw some dates at you, for example. If I said to you, what happened on 9-11-2001? Poof, everyone, bye. That's when the trade towers. Do you remember where you were? I do. Remember what you were thinking? I did. Do you remember the panic? I do. I remember that. How about, uh, some of you weren't here. I think Doris was here. But uh, July 4th, 1776. Do you remember that? <laughs> July 4th, 1776. What, 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 what happened then? You know that. You remember that date. Listen, this, when, when God mentioned to those people, Shiloh, their mind snapped right back there. There's no question as to what happened there in Shiloh. That's when the Ark of God's Covenant was taken by the Philistine people, captured. Well, what happened? Eli was not a great high priest. As a matter of fact, he was not a good high priest at all. And he was one of the last of the judges until, I mentioned, Samuel came along. His two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were degenerates, reprobates. And you can read that in First and Second Samuel. They were in the place of, 
of leading the nation of Israel in worship, if you can believe it, in the tabernacle, if you can believe it, right there in Shiloh. Well, the people of Israel were getting farther and farther away from the Lord, and the, God allowed the Philistines to attack the nation of Israel, Shiloh particularly. The Philistines began to attack, and the people said, we're going to go out and defend our nation. Now, it's worked every time. It's worked every time. Why? God has given them victory in battle. But as they travel out to, to, to battle this time, they're whipped. They were slaughtered by the Philistine people. And we're in chapter 4, please, 1 Samuel chapter 4. Look with me, please, 1 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 1. And the word of the Lord and the word of Samuel came unto all Israel. Now Israel went out against the Philistines to battle and camped beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines camped in Aphek. So they're, they're, they're up in this area, and they're all prepared now for battle. Two encampments, they're getting ready to go against one another. And when the people would come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, uh, well, back up to verse 2, the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel, and when they joined battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines, and they slew the army in the field, about 4,000 men. So Israel is decimated. And the people said, what, what happened? How could this be? We've won all the battles before this. What happened? And someone came up with the idea, oh, you forgot to bring God. You, you left God back there. And they went back and fetched what we know to be the Ark of the Covenant. Look, please, at verse 3. And when the people were coming to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord smitten us? Before the Philistines, let us fetch the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh, it will save us out of the hand of our enemies. Did you see that? What were they trusting in? The thing. They began treating God's holy covenant as a religious fetish. Is that possible today? Is that possible with you? Is your Bible only a religious fetish. Do you set it down once you leave here on Sunday and not pick it up till the next Sunday? If that's so, your Bible is a religious fetish to you. Is that safe to say? It's true. It's true. I'm, I'm going to go get my Bible. I'm having problems. I'm going to go get my Bible. There's something wrong. You're only interested in the Lord when you need him. He wants you all the time. He wants you to read about him, to learn about him, to know who he is and his purposes. But if you are treating your Bible without reading it, without being involved with oh yeah, I believe that's what God says, and yet you put him there until you need him, it's a religious fetish to you. What happened to this religious fetish? Well, we're in 1 Samuel, please. It was taken. It was taken. It was captured. Pick it up, if you would, please, in verse 10. And the Philistines fought, and Israel was smitten, in verse 10 of 1 Samuel 4. And they fled every man unto his own tent, and there was a very great slaughter, for there fell in Israel 30,000 footmen, add 10, 40,000 men are killed. And what happened? And the ark of God was taken. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were killed. And a runner ran back to Shiloh and let uh, Eli know that his sons were killed. And he was just distraught. But then the runner 
told him that the Ark of the Covenant was, was also taken, he fell off his bench and broke his neck and died. That dynasty of judges and, and priests was then destroyed, and God's Ark was taken. The Ark is later picked up by King David. We know that to be true. It goes through some very interesting things among the Philistines. We won't take time to look at that. But God has allowed David to bring the ark. Now the ark is taken by David's son and he brought back into the temple itself. Now this temple is built. It's glorious. It's arrayed perfectly. But in the process of Israel's wickedness, God tells us in the book of Ezekiel that the Ark of the Covenant, that is the Ark of God, was taken out by cherubim and brought into the presence of God. It was removed. The whole business was removed right out of there. Now, the rest of the story ends this way. The nation of Israel was destroyed. The city was taken. The temple was destroyed, never to recover, ever to recover, the way it, it was in Solomon's day. So the question is, if all this was written in earlier times and was written for our learning, if these were examples to us, what can happen today among the church? Turn with me, please, to the book of uh, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, just quickly, and we'll close with this. How about us today? Could this happen? I mean, aren't we more sophisticated than that as, as Christians? Well, I mentioned a couple things. I mentioned your... Your Bible. If you don't read your Bible, if you're not interested in what God says, it's only a religious fetish. It's all it is to you. But also, there are other things that can come into the life of a Christian that, that, that we, we treat as some kind of religious object. And we try to secure ourselves in that instead of the person of Christ. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, I had to go to chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 1. Did I say 10? Chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul is writing to the church of Corinth, and he says this to them. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that you be of, uh, there be no divisions among you, and that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind, in the same judgment. This is talking about having the mind of Christ. There's something wrong with you folks. There's something desperately wrong here at Corinth. And what is it? He says, for it has been declared to me uh, about you, brethren, by the house of Chloe, that there's contentions among you. Now, this I say that every one of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Paulus, or am I, I, I am of Cephas. It, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Is it important who you were taught by? Is it important? No, as long as he was a teacher of God. Is it important when you were taught? I've been saved for many years. Is it important when you were taught? No, it, it, it's not. But those things can become a fetish to us. Years ago, I learned from the great one. If that's your attitude, you didn't learn much. You didn't learn much. Years ago, I used to serve the Lord. If that's your attitude, you lost every reward that you had. Why? Because God's interested in what you're doing now. Remember Israel, the temple of the Lord. This is the temple. This is God's house. God said, I'm not interested in it anymore because you're not interested in it. You're treating this place like a religious fetish. Say, well, Bill, I've been coming to this church 
for 40 years. Well, so haven't I. And there's dust in the corners around here that's been here equal amount of time. That doesn't make it holy. It doesn't make it spiritual. What matters is how you walk with God right now. Turn with me one last place, and I'll stop with this. Turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 13. When you read the book of Jeremiah, and you're reading these things, understand what's going on. Yes, it was a magnificent place. Yes, it was a great place. It was a place where God said his name. The Spirit of God came upon that place, and the priest could not even go into the temple for several days because the glory of the Lord was in there. And then it ceased. Why? because the people no longer honored the Lord. The name of the Cornerstone Church has been strong for many years now. Praise the Lord for that. We're thankful for that. But God can take his name from this place. You've been saved for a lot of years. Thank the Lord for that. Or a few years. Thank the Lord for that. But recognize, unless you're immersed in the word of God, you're going to lose that. You won't lose your salvation. Don't misunderstand me but you'll lose your fervor for God. You'll lose the joy. You'll lose the peace. You'll lose the long-suffering. Why? Because you're no longer honoring him, just as the nation no longer honored him. Okay, we're in Romans chapter 13. Paul, writing to the church at Rome, says right in verse, let's pick it up in verse 12. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. What day? The day when we can expect the Lord's return. Let us, therefore, cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in reveling or in drunkenness, nor in immorality and wantonness, not in strife or envy. See, do Christians do those things? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. When do they stop doing those things? When they put on, verse 14, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. I have to ask myself, you have to ask yourself, is anything you're doing today just a religious fetish, or are you really walking with the Lord the way you should? Are you interested only in form, outward appearance, or is God changing your heart? Are you strengthened by his might in the inner man by the word of God through the spirit of God? You have to answer that for yourself. I have to answer it for myself. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time for your blessed word. Father, as we look back at these times, as we look back at the history that was written for our example, help us, Father, not to be caught up with the flesh and the things of the flesh, but rather that we will be more interested in the spirit of the living God through the word of God to the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name, amen.